This past week, I ran across a fascinating report by the Chronicle of Philanthropy. This is what they did. They analyzed IRS data from Americans who filed deductions based upon their charitable contributions in the year 2012. The Chronicle then took all of this data across the United States, and they created an interactive map demonstrating, it's actually titled, How Americans Give. And they used data from 2006 as kind of a benchmark for comparison reasons. Now, if you dig into this, this map, and I would encourage you to, we have a link on c316.tv where you can kind of explore it on your own. Some really fascinating stuff presented in the data. But there are three things that kind of emerge from my estimation from the study. That's first, that Americans are by and large very generous people. I mean, globally speaking, Americans um, are generous. Our generosity is demonstrated in pretty awesome ways. Anytime there's a hurricane or a national disaster, America jumps right in, right? We'll donate to the, the Red Cross. We'll give of resources. Americans are benevolent. As a matter of fact, according to the Chronicle, Americans in 2012 donated an astounding $180 billion to charity. It's a lot of money. Beyond that, the Chronicle discovered that on average, every single American gives approximately 2% of their income to some form of charity. So by examining the data, it's clear Americans are very generous people. Secondly, the second thing that jumps from the study is that the wealthier you become, the less generous you are. From 2006 to 2012, during what economists would call the Great Recession, data analyzed by the Chronicle revealed that the poor Americans in this six-year span, poorer Americans grew more generous, while wealthier Americans became stingier, which is ironic when during this same six-year period, the top 10% of Americans, that was the only income bracket to increase, and all of uh, everyone else, it decreased. The Chronicle ended up creating a chart that illustrated this reality by comparing 2012 with records from 26. Let, let me kind of go through this here. If you made $200,000 or more from this same six-year span, your giving decreased by 4.5%. If you made between $100,000 to $200,000, your giving decreased by 3.3%. 75,000 to 100, it was a minus 3.6%. 50,000 to 75,000, it increased 5.7%. So decrease, decrease, increase, increase. 25,000 to 50,000, increased 8.7%. So increased 8.7% in that bracket when it decreased 4.5% from the 200,000 and up. If you made $25,000 or less during these six years, your giving increased 16.6% during the Great Recession. Now, beyond providing state-by-state -state analysis of giving, the Chronicle report demonstrated percentages of giving based upon individual income brackets within each state. It was, it's pretty amazing. If you take the map, you start to zoom in. You can actually pull income data from Winder, Georgia, in these same brackets. Let, let me give you the average giving ratios for Georgians. 
If you make nothing up to $25,000, on average, your giving is 10.37% of your income. That's $2,357 of, on average, $15,891. If you made between $25,000 and $50,000, your giving ratio by income is 6.65% or $3,170 based off of $37,790. If you made between $50,000 and $75,000, your giving off of income was 4.95% or $3,634 off of $62,000, uh, $62, roughly. If you made between $75,000 to $100,000, your ratio was 4.17%. If you made between $100,000 to $200,000, your ratio was 3.52%. If you made $200,000 or more, it was 3.83% or $19,950 off of a little under half a million dollars. 10.375% off of your income is the average donation yearly um, in the state of Georgia for those making $25,000 or less. The wealthier you become, data across the board, the stingier you are, the poorer you are, the more generous. Jumps right off the page by looking at the data. The third thing that's interesting beyond that reality or the reality that Americans are generous is that American generosity is largely the byproduct of Christianity. According to the annual State of the Plate report, more than $50 billion of all charitable contributions made in the United States came directly from 10 million tithing Americans. This accounts for 28% of all giving nationwide. And on a side note, sadly, 10 million tithing Americans is only about 5% of all Christians. It's interesting, but the Chronicle report actually substantiates this claim by demonstrating that states where religious participation is higher gave the greatest percentage of their discretionary income to charity in 2012. Utah, the highest giving state, because Mormons declare that you have to give 10%. It was 6.56% of their giving on average, $6,000 roughly, or $65.60 for every $1,000. Now let me give you the next. Mississippi, number two, 4.99%. Alabama, number three, 4.81%. Tennessee came in fourth. Joe would be glad to hear that. 4.45%. And then the state of Georgia came in fifth at 4.20%, $3,949 being the average donation yearly, uh, or $42 off of every thousand bucks. Now, ironically, the Chronicle then flipped the script to illustrate that states with a lower religious participation proved to be least generous. You know, the least generous state in America is New Hampshire. On average, it's 1.74% or $17.40 of every $1,000, maximizing $2,032. So 1.74% for New Hampshire. Number 50. Number 40 is Maine, 1.95. Number 48 is Vermont, 2%. Number 47 is Rhode Island, which is 2.07%. And finally, Massachusetts comes in at 46, 2.19% or $2,000 of 
average donation. So higher religious participation, higher the donation, lower the religious participation, lower the donation or charity. Now, while studies have shown charitable giving is important to religious individuals, and people who are active in their faith tend to give more than those who are inactive, here there's an interesting truth that also comes from the data, and that is the reality that giving within Christianity is largely the activity of a few people. Studies reveal that while tithers make up no more than 20% of givers in the typical congregation, they end up donating between 50 and 80% of all the money. Amazingly, 20% of American Christians, 20%, give nothing to charity. And nearly 75% of Christians give less than 2% of their income. And 2%, if you recall, is the average rate of all Americans, Christian or non-Christian. So 75% don't even get to the average of the pagans. Now, the general social survey, they discovered that while 25% of Christians said they tithed 10%, when their donations were checked against income figures, because this is public record, it was discovered that of this 25%, only 3% gave anything more than 5%. So you have 20%, uh, 25% say, yeah, I give 10%, when in reality, only 3% gave an upwards of 5%. You see kind of a disconnect there. Survey also discovered that 10% of those uh, who reported tithing 10% of their income actually gave $200 or less to their church in a given year. According to Empty Tomb, which is a research organization specializing on religious giving, in analyzing data from 1968 to 2009, they discovered that member giving within the church actually decreased from 2.45% to 2.04%. That's a decline of 17%, which is kind of mind-boggling when you take into account that during the Great Depression, the average giving of Christians was at 3.3%. I mean, we're giving almost a full percentage point less than those during the Dust Bowl. Writing for Relevant Magazine, Mike Holmes proposed an interesting question. He asked, what would happen if believers were to increase their giving to a minimum of, let's say, 10%? According to his research, if every Christian tithed 10%, there would be a yearly revenue stream of $165 billion a year that the church would be able to use to further the gospel. Mr. Holmes uh, Holmes, he continues by listing just a few of the things the church could do with that kind of money. He, he breaks it down. He says $25 billion a year could relieve global hunger and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. $12 billion a year could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion a year could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. $1 billion a year could fully fund all overseas missions work with $106 billion being left over for additional domestic ministry expansions. What about our church? A 2011 quarterly ECCU report on giving, as it specifically applies to churches, states that the average yearly donation per attendee in America was $599. Since 
our internal data or our internal uh, uh, record keeping indicates that since uh, January of 2013, we averaged 71 people or 71 adults on, an, on a given Sunday. If we were to take 71 adults, assuming everyone ties, and factor that in with the national average, averages of yearly giving, uh, our projected budget for this year should be $42,529. Yet, astoundingly, Calvary 316 completely blows up the traditional church model as we're currently projected to end the year around $110,000. That means that the average yearly donation for every member of our church is $1,549 or more than two and a half times the national average. That's awesome, right? Well, don't get too proud. Because the reality, right, if we're to be honest this morning, is that not all, quote-unquote, 71 attendees actually give $1,549 a year to Calvary 316. According to a Barna Group study on charity of Christians who give, now keep in mind, 20% of all church attenders don't give anything. And we're going to just assume, because it's hard to work the data if you don't, that all 71 people that attend every Sunday morning here at Calvary 316 give faithfully every week. So that's the, the numbers we're going to work with. According to the Barna study, of Christians who give, 22% donated $100 or less in the given year. Now, at Calvary 316, that number is 33% which is 33% above the average. That's not a very good number. According to Barna, 33% of givers donated between $100 and $500. At Calvary 316, that number for us is 17%, or 48% below the national average, also not a very good number. 20% donated between $500 and $1,000. At Calvary 316, that number is 10%, or 50% below the national average, also not a very good number. Now, this is where things get good. 12% donate between $100 and $2,500 a year. At Calvary 316, and once again, we're operating with kind of some loose statistics here, 17% of our attendees, or 29% above, the national average donate. So that's an increase of five points, which is a good thing. Nationally, 8% donate between $2,500 and $5,000 a year. At Calvary 316, it's 12% or 33% above the national average, also an astounding number. 5% donate above $5,000, according to Barna. At Calvary 316, we have 11% of our congregation or 55% above the national average that will donate $5,000 or more to our church. Also, an awesome number. Now, I don't mean to make this weird, but it's gonna be weird. Because I wanna take that data and kind of gauge income levels of C316 members from this analysis. Now, we don't have income data, we don't care what you make, we don't track that information, but for giggles of 71 people who attend, let's take those percentages and break it down to our congregation. According to the data, 24 people 
within our congregation are unemployed. 13 people are, ma are making below $5,000 a year. Eight people are making between $5,000 and $10,000 a year. 10 people are making between $10,000 and $25,000 a year. Seven people are making between $25,000 and $50,000 a year. And nine people are making above $50,000. Now, here's my point. C316 is in a wonderful financial situation because the majority of what I would classify are employed attenders are actually tithing. I mean, this breakdown of those making above $5,000 is pretty accurate. And yet, consider this for a moment. Are there 37 people or a little over 50% of the adults in this room honestly making below $5,000 a year? Because that's what the data says. Now, do you know the poverty line for every single individual in Georgia? is $11,670, which in theory, if you're tithing off of poverty, would be 1167 bucks. Now, placed in context to the stats I just laid out, can we honestly say that 60% of the individuals who make up Calvary 316 are living in abject poverty? I would say no. Now, beyond the reality of our church specifically, or the church universally. Our big question this morning, what I'm trying to substantiate is why is there such a disconnect? There's a disconnect, it's obvious, right? A huge disconnect. I mean, do a majority of Christians reject the biblical basis of giving? I mean, is that the explanation? That being generous or financially supporting the church they attend is not something the Bible commands that they should do? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, there's not one bit of statistical analysis or data that shows that people don't admit, Christians don't admit a responsibility to give. And even the data shows that 10% is kind of the number that most people will end up landing on, but no one really ends up faithfully doing. Sadly, a Huffington Post article written by David Bridges, which the Huffington Post is as far from being conservative or um, it's very liberal to start with, but David Briggs, he, he wrote an article, it was titled, The Flesh is Weak, Churchgoers Give Far Less Than They Think, and I believe he touches on a greater and more reasonable explanation for what I would call the giving disconnect. The article begins with this scathing but true thesis. Churchgoers like to think of themselves as generous and cheerful givers, but for many, the flesh appears weak when it comes to living up to their own standards for charitable giving. You see, I believe that this disconnect, the giving disconnect, it originates not in our brains. And that's an assumption I'm gonna make this morning, that biblically speaking, that we can all agree that we should give. Forget about percentages, but that the Bible commands us to be generous. I think we can agree on that. So I don't think the issue when it comes to giving is a matter of our, of our noggin, nor do I think it's actually even a matter of the heart. Contrary to popular opinion, I don't think the giving disconnect is a matter of the brain or the heart because I think most people know I should and have a desire to do it. And yet the problem originates in our disciplines. 
I'll give you another example to validate this point because biblical disciplines follow the same matter. It would be hard to find a Christian that, that would agree that um, intellectually I shouldn't read my Bible, right? Like, well, you know why I don't read my Bible as a Christian? Because I don't think I have to. Like, like you're not gonna run into a Christian that would like argue the point that I don't have to read the Bible. I think we would all agree we do, right? Healthy Christian. Nor do I think that the issue is a matter of the heart when it comes to the Bible, because I think most Christians would have a desire. Like, I really do want to have a devotion. Like, you have conversations with people that aren't having them. They kill themselves over and over and over again because it's like, I really want to wake up and have, a, have some time with the Lord, but I just fail over. So it's not a matter of the brain or even the heart. It's instead a problem within the discipline. I think for many, when they consider the tithing issue, they could echo what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 19. He says, for the good that I will to do, I don't do it. But the evil that I will not to do, uh, I end up practicing that. It's true. Now here's the question. If the issue with giving isn't one of the brain or the heart, but rather discipline. If that's the issue, then how do we develop the discipline of giving or being generous. And I think, I know this was a long intro, but I think the answer is found in the final four verses of Acts chapter 11. Read it with me. Verse 27. And in these days, Paul and Barnabas, they're teaching this church in Antioch. We're told that prophets came from Jerusalem and one of them, a man named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit, which means he like he acted it out. I would have loved to have seen that. He demonstrated, showed by the Spirit, that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now Luke, who is our author, he tells us that towards the end of this year-long season of ministry, an awesome season of ministry, that a prophet who had come from Jerusalem to Antioch, this man, Agabus, he prophesied that a great famine was going to take place throughout all of the world. Now while the event would be global in scope, it seems that within the context of Agabus's prophecy, that the Christian brethren dwelling in Judea, specifically Jerusalem, would end up being hit the hardest. For history buffs, Jewish historian Josephus actually makes, in his chronicles of the same time period, two references to a great famine that ravaged Jerusalem in 45 AD, which fits perfectly with this particular section of Scripture. This church plant in Antioch, which, don't forget, is largely Gentile. They hear of a coming need, right? And they immediately determine to send a financial care package to this established church in Jerusalem, which is made up of mainly Jews. Luke tells us that the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief. Now, four things emerge from our text that I think will help you. If you, have, if you know you should give and you have the heart to give, but you're not doing it, I think there's four things from this text that you should consider, four things that will help you develop the discipline first. Take 
ownership of your church. It's clear by the reaction of these believers in Antioch that upon hearing of this financial need within the church, a church that they felt connected to, that they immediately felt a responsibility to act. We can gather that from the text, right? They hear Agabus, he demonstrates by the spirit, there's this need coming and they felt a responsibility to do something immediately. You know, it's very interesting, but data substantiates an interesting correlation between giving to a church and that person's involvement within the church. According to research, of those who tithe 10% or more, 96% of them attend church weekly. 70% of them read their Bible between four and seven times a week. 54% of them serve in some capacity within the church, and 53% are involved in some type of secondary group. You see, when someone plugs into a church, not only is part of them now invested, but there comes a natural responsibility to ensure that that church that you call home that you're plugged into, that the needs of that church are being met. Like my first point is very simple, but if you struggle to give, if you struggle tithing, you wanna develop the discipline, there's a disconnect. Well, find a way to plug in. Because if you plug into the church, immediately there's a sense of greater responsibility. So when you see needs, you're more inclined to act upon what your heart and your head are telling you. And you know, beyond this reality, even if you don't wanna plug in, the Bible's clear that those benefiting from a ministry should indeed carry a financial obligation to ensure the ministry is being cared for regardless of their active participation. Let me, let me read what Jesus told his disciples before sending them out for a season of ministry in Matthew chapter 10. He told them, take no money, why? For the worker is worthy of support. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 5, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Again, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul will say, even so the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So whether you're plugged in or not, if you're benefiting from a church, you do, scripturally speaking, have a responsibility to support that church. I mean, the implication from all three passages is that those who are preaching the gospel, performing the ministry of the church, should be supported by the people that they minister to. You can say, I don't agree. Well, you don't agree with this or Jesus or Paul, not me. Like, even if you don't wanna plug into the church, think about ownership this way. If you and your family are being blessed by this church community and you're being spiritually fed by a pastor, shouldn't you assume enough ownership in order to ensure that the amenity you are enjoying continues? Like, we don't have a money tree to magically pay the bills here. Like, the way we exist is by your generosity. If everyone stopped giving, three months from now, we'd close up, unless the Lord supernaturally provided. We have three months in reserves, but if you stop giving, that's it. You know, according to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average American 
spends 5.6% of their income or $2,827 on entertainment. Sadly, in context to all the data that we've been looking at, Americans spend more on alcohol per year, or 1%, that's $454, and tobacco products, which is only half a percentage, or $303, but they give more to entertainment, alcohol, and tobacco than they do to a church that they view as being a blessing to their family. Take ownership of your church, and it will help you develop a discipline. Secondly, start giving in a way that you can honestly maintain. And I think that's a simple second point. Luke tells us that each disciple, they hear this need, what do they do immediately? They gave according to their ability. Like we can presume that in regards to their ability, that there were two aspects to this. First, their ability in the sense of like their financial resources, the ability of their bank account, and probably also the ability of their faith. I think you can make both both deductions from that statement. When you consider your financial giving, this whole topic, there are two questions you should ask yourself. One, what resources do I have to give? Like you might have the heart to give a million dollars, but if your bank account has like a thousand dollars in it, it doesn't matter what your heart is. Your ability will limit what you can do, right? So you have to consider like what What resources do I have at my disposal? That's just wise, being prudent. But secondly, here's the other question you should ask yourself. Do I have enough faith to trust that God can care for my needs with whatever remains from what I should give? And then when you determine those two questions, what resources do I have to give? Do I have enough faith to trust God? Then honestly, just figure out a way that you can balance the two. Some have greater faith, some don't. You know, in Bible college, I had about a month left before I was going to graduate, pack up my car, and drive home. Three months left, and I had been real wise with my money. I had enough dough, give or take, to like finish out the last three weeks, have enough gas to get home, maybe a hotel here or there. And yet, I was sitting in a Bible study, and the Lord just impressed on my heart that I should meet a need of a friend. I had a friend who was going on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. She was about $200 short. And just the Lord impressed on my heart. It was a weird thing. I needed, I needed to give her $200, but I was wrestling with this. So I was sitting in a Bible study and the topic happened to be giving. And he made this point. Your ability should fit your resources, right? It should all be connected. And I'm like, oh, thank, thank goodness. It was one of those Bible studies that I left. Like, thank goodness, Jesus, you talked me out of listening to you because there's no way I have $200, you know? And so I went by the ATM on my way home and I uh, wanted to see what my balance was. It was $207, son of a gun. Because then the question arose in my mind, do I think I can do more with $207 that God can do with seven? Now I have no idea how $7 is gonna last me three weeks or get me home, but if God spoke things into existence that weren't there to begin with, he can do it. So I was sharing this with a friend and they were like, you need to do it, you need to be obedient. So I was like, okay, all right, here we go. Like I have one in and out hamburger and $2 left for a tank of gas. I'm not even gonna get out of California, but whatever. So what did I do? I went to the bank, pulled out $200, heading over to her house. And another friend called me. 
out of the blue. He said, hey, have you eaten dinner? I said, no. I said, I'm, I'm actually right around the corner from you. He said, swing on by. We got some leftovers. I was like, perfect. So I stopped by, just a random thing. We sat down, ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Kind of an odd conversation because I still don't quite understand why I'm here. He's never invited me over for dinner before. Um, I would have thought peanut butter and jelly. He would have, you know, maybe some steaks or something. I mean, but anyway, so I go to leave drive over to my friend's house, give away the majority of the money I have. And he grabs my arm as I'm walking out the door. And he turns around and he puts a wad of cash in my hand. He says, I have no idea what you're supposed to do with this, but I was praying this afternoon and God spoke to me and said, I needed to give you this money. And, and I was like, well, I can't, I can't, you know, I, I played it off. Like, I can't, you know. And so I get in my car, and this is just how my brain works, and my mind I'm like, how cool would it be if it was $200 exactly, right? And so I, I drive out of the neighborhood, and I immediately pull over. Like, I don't want him to see me, but I'm like, I got to count this. And so I start working my way through this wad of cash. 160 180 200 220 240 It was $300. My first thought was, wow, that just totally kills the story, God. Like it would have been way cooler if it was 200 exactly. And the Lord spoke to me and said, no, the 200, well, you know what that's for. But the 100's for you to be, because you were obedient. The 100 was for you. And I was like, I was like, wow. I, I've never not tithed since that moment. Because the Lord demonstrated to me that he would take care of my needs. The, the question is, is faith. It's faith. But you got to start in a way that you can maintain. Brian Cluth, who's the founder of the Maximum Generosity Study, he said this. He said, the scripture tells us to give from what we have. This is a biblical mandate. There are some seasons of our lives where we have less than others. And so when you experience a downturn financially, you don't have to stop giving, but just give a, a portion of what you have. He says, I always like to say, you don't give to get, you give because you've received something already. You give because you've already gotten something from God. I think that's a good perspective to have. You know, the third thing that jumps from the text in regards to developing this discipline is that you should create a method whereby you can maintain this giving. You know, one of, once these believers had honestly evaluated their ability, right? So they each looked at their ability. What does Luke say? Luke tells us that they determined to send relief. You know, so often giving doesn't boil down to our sense of biblical responsibility or even our ability to do so, but ends up being a simple matter of determination. This word determined. In the Greek, it's horizo. We, we get our English horizon off of it. it. It literally means to mark out the limit or to appoint. It's to ordain. Because their generosity wasn't casual. They determined, which meant that it was intentional. They determined to give. They looked at their ability. They figured out what they could realistically maintain. Then they made a determination. You know, this morning, if we're operating under the premise that you ought to tithe, but you're just struggling to do so, determining the following two things will help you out tremendously. First, determine how much of your income, based off your ability, you're going to give. How much are you going to give? Now, while it's true that tithers, that among actual tithers, 23% 
give 10%, 54% give between 11 and 15, 14% give between 16 and 20, and 9% actually give more than 20%, never get hung up on a number. Now, it's true, 10%, there's some biblical precedent that this is a great place to start when it comes to your giving. But the Bible never dictates or commands a percentage. The key is to set a percentage. Like if your giving is willy-nilly, you'll never do it. But if you determine this is the percentage for this year based on my ability to give, and now I'm gonna determine to stand or to abide by that standard, like you're one step further along than you were. I wanna play you a video clip. A video clip. It's about three minutes in length but from Rick Warren and how he has determined how much of his income he's going to tithe. If you could roll it. And I want to challenge you and you and your wife to make a decision to become more generous every year of your life. Kay and I made this decision 38 years ago. When we got married, we said each year we're going to raise our tithe. So. The first year of marriage, we tithed 10%. Why? Because God says, it's, you give me 10%. For the end of our first year of marriage, we raised our tithe to 11%. The end of our second year, we raised our tithe to 12%. The third year, we raised our tithe 3%. And each year, we would raise it a little bit more. And on years when the cupboard was bare and we were barely making ends meet, we would only raise our giving maybe a quarter of a percent but we wanted to be more generous every year than the year before. And on years I'd get a raise or have a windfall or something, we'd raise it 4 or 5%. But we kept raising it every, this last year, we raised it another percent from 90 to 91%. I've been playing this game with God for 38 years. God says, Rick, you give to me and I'll give to you and we'll see who wins. I have lost that game every year for 38 years. I dare you to trust God. I dare you to trust God with your money. You trust him with your salvation, you don't even trust him to tithe. Who are you kidding? If you don't trust him with your money, you don't trust him. The Bible says, if you are not faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will give you the true riches of God? Faithful in little, faithful in much. And so, this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the only antidote, you see, every time I give, my heart grows bigger. Every time I give, I break the grip of materialism in my life. And every time I give, I become more like Jesus. And I want to be like Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. I don't give to get a blessing. I get blessed, but I don't give to get a blessing. I give to be a blessing. So the antidote to the lust of the flesh is integrity, and the antidote to the lust of the eyes is generosity. It is the only way. Don't tell me you're not a materialist if you're not generous. If you want to know what really matters to you, let me see your checkbook stubs and your calendar. Because the way you spend your time and the way you spend your money tells me what's really important to you. If you spend more money on video games or Starbucks than you do on the things of the Lord, you've got a problem.
powerful statement, isn't it? From the proceeds that he got from the Purpose Driven Life, the book, he ended up paying back all 30 years of salary to Saddleback. Wonderful example of someone who determined, right? They determined, this is our commitment. This is what we're going to do. But there's another thing you should consider. In addition to determining how much of your income you're going to tithe, hey, you might only start with 2% this year, the national average. Figure out what the percentage is, but then determine a method of giving that will work for you. It's funny. I don't want to embarrass Creighton. I'm probably going to do it. Creighton, our, in, our intern, randomly, as, as we were logging the money into the, into the, into the finances, we were the weekly tithe, he asked me out of the blue, he said, hey, how much have I tithed this year? Now, now, I know Creighton, and I know that here he knows that he should, and I know his heart that he knows that he should, because we've had conversations about it. And when I told him the number of what he had given that year, seriously, tears welled up in his eyes. Because he just didn't realize that there was a disconnect like that. And so he goes, can you just take 10% out of my paycheck? And I was like, no, I can't do that, man. Like, that's not how this works. We don't, our, our tithe isn't a, you know, a withholding. <laughs> and he goes, then as a brother, when you hand me the check, can you look in my eyes and say, hey, you need to tithe. And so I do that. And he's downloaded Square Cash, which is a free app, so that he can immediately enter in the amount. He sends it to the email address, office at calvary316.net, and it's immediately pulled out of his bank account, no charges. He, he, he determined to do it, and he figured out a way. I, I have another friend in the church that I'm not going to mention. Had a heart to give. Knew he should. Struggling to do so. And you know how they figured out, the method they figured out to do it? I get an envelope of tithing checks dated for the next six months. And he's like, if it's left to me, I totally ruin it. So I'm just giving you it all and just deposit the check on the date. I was like, I'll do that. But there was a determination. There was a determination to do it. We have all different forms of giving, folks, to allow you to figure out the one that works best for you. For some, you carry a checkbook around everywhere, so it's really easy. But for others, you don't own checks, right? Which is why we have an iPad kiosk. And for some of you, you're like, I need it to come right out of my account. Well, that's why we have PayPal set up. And you're like, I, I forget. You could set up reoccurring. Like you figure out a percentage, you figure out what God's leading you to do, and then you figure out a method that you can maintain a percentage you can maintain, and a method you can maintain because this will help you determine to give. The fourth thing is that never forget why the discipline is important in the first place. This detail that they sent it to the elders of the church of Jerusalem, we're gonna talk about what the word elder means next, next week, but this detail shouldn't be overlooked. You see, one of the reasons that giving is important in the life of the believer, and Rick Warren touched on it, is that it helps keep my heart and the money in my bank account into a proper balance. It helps me fight materialism. In Luke chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus would caution, right? And we've all quoted the verse. But for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul explains why it's important. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
You see, giving of my first fruits, it helps me remember that everything I have isn't mine. Everything I have is God's. Like my entire paycheck, even the part the government withheld for Social Security, I'll never forget. I'll never get. It's all God's. Like every bit, all 100%. It's His money. And it's His job to care for my needs. Whether it's 90% of that or 100% of that or 10%, it's His job to provide and to care and mine to faithfully steward His resources. You see, this is why trusting a tithe to be faithfully administered by others is an important part of the process of maintaining this healthy balance. See, giving without condition, giving that first fruit back, letting it go, letting God, it helps sever any connection or power that money might have over our hearts. In conclusion, since this giving disconnect originates in our, not in our brains that we know we should or in our hearts that we really want to, but in our disciplines, we would be wise to learn from these believers in Antioch that we should take ownership of our church, that we should start giving in a way you can honestly maintain, that you should create a method whereby you can maintain that giving based on your ability, and that we should never forget why the discipline is important to, to begin with. Now, I know money is not a very fun topic to discuss. I would hope that the track record that we have at the church of not placing much of an, in, of an emphasis on money, like we don't get involved? It's not like we have a sermon like this once a quarter, is it? Like we're just in, in a part of, of Acts chapter 11 that the Lord spoke to me and that I felt like we had to faithfully dig through it. But Jesus, Jesus taught on money more than any other person in scripture. So often why people end up having such a visceral reaction to a sermon based on money is because it's pricked something they didn't like. It's a discipline. And as a pastor, if I'm going to speak about sexual immorality, then I have a responsibility to also talk about money and your finances, my finances. And I'm telling you, I, I'm not presenting something that I don't, I don't practice. A, a requirement to be an elder at this church is that this discipline is something you've already established because it's fundamental. It's fundamental to your relationship with God, what you do with the resources he's given and how you allocate it and how you handle that. So don't get upset with me this morning that this was the topic we addressed. And please don't throw stones. Please don't throw stones. So Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.